Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Stromers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my guest co-host, Dr. John Barlow from the Mayo Clinic of Minnesota. John, how are you? Doing great this morning. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily affect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the Mayo Clinic, or the institutions of any of our guests. So today we have the supreme good fortune to be joined by Dr. Matthias Zumstein in Bern, Switzerland. Um, we spent the last um, two days um, visiting with Dr. Zumstein, and we've learned an incredible lot. He's been an incredibly gracious host to us in clinic and in the operating room, and we're very thankful to be given the opportunity to visit him. We've learned a ton of great stuff. Um, in both settings, um, and John and I both said that it was hard to even know where to start um, with the highlights here. I wanted to start with something you've taught us that definitely is going to change my practice when I go back to the United States, and that's how to measure displacement in acromioclavicular dislocations, sometimes called shoulder separations, and then how to treat them. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about that. You've made a I, what recently what I think is a big contribution. Yeah, I think I tried to. To, to, to solve or let's say to, to address uh, a problem because we, we don't know if we are talking always about the same thing and I'm sure we don't talking about the same thing if we ju just address EC distance in the vertical plane looking in AP view and uh, we published uh, in 2021 in AJSM this uh, circle method which we make uh, great thoughts regarding this uh, displacement three-dimensional from the lateral clavicle to the acromion and we were able to show that it's a resilient and stable uh, way of measurement with a high intra and inter observer uh, reliability and also with a very high discriminant validity which means that you can really discriminate between twos threes fours three a three b and fives and uh, the, uh, this might be a guidance for us to talk about the same thing regarding your second question about treatment strategy for me personally i go uh, like the type c's those which have a displacement more than 15 millimeters compared to the contralateral site measured by the circle method i go more towards a surgical treatment or however i don't know if this is really the way to go it's uh, correlate it corresponds to a rockwood four and five I think this is this is my practice, but uh, I'm happy to share the experience of other surgeons and uh, also uh, to, to, to define all the treatment algorithms. The most important message for me, what I think we discussed intensively, was that we have now a, a reliable and resilient measurement tool to discuss about the same thing in terms of displacement. The other thing, not necessarily... Um yet driven by data, but you talked a lot about the importance of getting to them early and potentially improving outcomes if we can do them early. What are your thoughts about that? And obviously, not necessarily level one data yet, but uh, what, what is your feeling about that as we go forward? Yeah, I mean, the feeling if people who treat a lot of these AC dislocations, they agree on most of the things. If you, those which you need to treat, and it's very difficult to discuss which one you need to treat, it's better to treat them early. And I try to treat them within three weeks, preferably two weeks. And I do a reconstruction in both planes, vertical and horizontal. I, I don't say that you have to use technique A, B or C, I don't mind, but I think both planes are important to address. Because if you fail this high-grade instability, fail to address these high-grade instabilities and they get problems, I personally, and I think most of the surgeons have less good results and more displacement if you do through chronic reconstruction, also with an allograft or an autograft compared to an acute, uh, acute repair. Certainly, it seems like if you get the native ligament to heal, that's got to be better than any ligament we could build out of out of graft. Yes. 
You know, the other thing we saw was we saw Cuff Repair, um, and you know we've learned a lot about you from you about Cuff Repair, and I know you've studied this extensively. You know, one of the things there's two things we saw during the Cuff Repair that I thought were really interesting. The first was the use of an arthroscopic Mason Allen, and the second was positioning of the lateral anchor to optimize its position and its its grip kind of within the tuberosity. Tell us a little bit about as you approach a Cuff Repair. Your fixation of the tendon, your fixation on the bone. How do you think of those things? Okay, regarding second question, we've done um, micro CT studies when I was in Australia regarding those patients with have cuff, chronic tough tear and those without, and we saw that up to two centimeters below the summit of the greater tuberosity, the quality not only of the cortical but also of the trabecular structures was significantly lower in chronic cuff tears until two centimeters. So I try to put my lateral anchor always two centimeters below the summit where I have an equivalent quality that if I wouldn't have a chronic tough tear or even in the acute setting. Second question was regarding the Mason-Allen technique. We've done a prospective uh, study in the whole country, including also some centers in Germany, where we prospectively included 1,000 rotator cuff repairs in a multi-center setup. And we have uh, 12 months follow-up now. Uh, on the most imp impressive uh, uh, message for me, in because I, I, I've done with two other surgeons, the Mason-Allen technique, where I really atroscopically uh, uh, Mason Allen technique and we had better clinical results, less stiffness and better force compared to an age and gender match cohort uh, in 3, 6 and 12 months, which was surprisingly because we hope to have the, ex the equivalent results and we can skip this little bit more complicated technique. Well, it's, a, uh, it's great literature and obviously um Anything in the rotator cuff that can improve our healing rates and improve our functions uh, of function is, is going to be important. And there's been a lot of studies that show equivalence with different things. So I think the fact that you've shown a difference is going to be um, really meaningful for us. The other thing that I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about was we, we saw a pectoralis transfer to the um, lesser tuberosity for subscap deficiency. And I think we've all been thinking and talking a lot more about transfers around the shoulder in the last five or 10 years, but this has been a steady drumbeat from your mentor, Christian Gerber in Switzerland about transfers for decades now. Can you talk about your current thoughts and indications for transfers either in the front or the back of the shoulder? Yeah. So talking about the pec major and the front, I mean, the treatment, the indication for that is pain and uh, for, for from the front in irreparable subscap uh, uh, subscap tears and reparable if you have an additionally reparable supraspinatus tear. Those are the perfect indications where you do a pec major transfer. It's absolutely clear that you cannot revert a pathological liftoff or a, a clearly a, a lack in the force in internal rotation. But as far as I understood and read from the literature, with no transfer, either an anterior lat dorsi or a pec major, over and under the conjoint tendon, you can revert pathological lift loss and internal rotation force. It's clear and obvious that uh, the, 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 the force direction of a pec major is theoretically less good biomechanically than an anterior lat dorsi, but clinically in short, middle and long-term follow-up, data of Christian has clearly shown that this works for pain relief in irreparable soft tear, uh, anterior and anterior superior cuff tears. Second question about the posterior, of course, there is also the big debate regarding <laughs> the lat dorsi and the lower trap, and I think both are equivalent ways of uh, relieving 
the force on the remaining teres minor and give the possibility either external rotation one or two to preserve the force not only that the ability to move the arm in space but that you can do something with minor weights one to two kilogram in external rotation in space our biomechanical data has proven the, all the work of Bassem, which is better external rotation one for the lower trap, better external rotation two for the lat dorsae. I was trained with the lat dorsae, that's the reason why I use it, and I have more functional need for my patients in external rotation two than one. That's the reason why I go this way. Just to clarify for listeners in America who don't frequently use those terms, external rotation one is external rotation with the arm at the side in full adduction, and external rotation two is Exhortation with the arm at 90 degrees of abduction, i.e. the arm away from the side, which is, I think most people would argue, maybe a more functional way that people use their arm, but maybe dependent on the specific functional glands of the patient. You know, one of the things I think we've seen um, in your in your clinic has been that your treatment of instability is really, there's, there's, there's really some advances you've made and some advances that you're, it sounds like, in the process of making as compared to the United States. In the United States, we often see instability as this is a problem of the capsule or the labrum, and it's very clear in your clinic that you're moving on to you know, the morphology of the scapula with, with the, the work that you guys have done with homometry and into osteotomies in that regard. And then in addition, in patients with capsular laxity and did not just reefing up and growing capsulorphies, but reconstructing. Tell us a little bit about that. So, of course, I think we have the classic indications in unidirectional anterior inferior or uh, instability, which we have the discussion, or let's say not the debate, but discussion about if we go always to the bone block procedure or latergé or even capsule or banquet. I mean, this I don't want to jump too much on that. I think there most of us agree that there is uh, some kind of indication algorithms. What we are really interested in those which are multidirectional, unstable, which we do not have a clearly clear, clear solution and the posterior and posterior inferior. But the fact that Christian Gerber joined us a couple of months ago also in our team, just partially, he brought this idea of this whole morphological assessment in instability treatment, which we include in our decision-making process a lot. So first step is really to, to, to look at, even in the classic x-rays, if we have really pathological morphological changes compared to a, let's say, plus-minus standardized way. If we do not see that, then we really look on the way Way of uh, of the the potential options to to restore the functional uh, fun functional uh, functional stability of the joint. Either if we have a morphological change, we have a pretty low threshold if it's possible to correct the morphology towards a standardized statistical shape modeling to a normalized shoulder. If we do not have massive uh, morphological changes, then we go in inferior instability to a reconstruction of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, either auto or allograft, and all the rest, I think it's classic, unidirectional, we treat like, like I said in the, at the beginning. Well, as I said at the beginning, this has been a phenomenal visit for both John and I. I think we've learned a ton, and um, I think we're seeing, you know, the, the future is now here in Switzerland, at least, <laughs> and hopefully the things you're doing will filter their way to the rest of us with time. Um, thank you again for being a gracious host and um, for everything you've taught us. And um, hopefully we can come back and visit again in the future. It was great to have you with us and the intense discussions and the great discussions. Uh, really, I'm happy and privileged to receive uh, you as ACS fellows and uh, happy to, to catch up later somewhere on the planet. Mm -hmm. Sounds great.